Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jay Chandrasekhar has spent the past two decades writing, directing, and acting in film and television. With his group Broken Lizard, he has co-written, co-starred, and directed their feature films Super Troopers, Beer Fest, and Club Dread. He's also directed the big screen version of Dukes of Hazard, small screen episodes of Arrested Development, and appeared in a memorable stunt for Jackass 2. But Chandrasekhar also spent some of his formative years studying improv comedy from the legendary Del Close in Chicago, editing the late Mitch Hedberg's film Los Enchiladas, and bringing sketch and improv comedy to New York City when the only other game in town was a plucky group from NYU called The State. Chandrasekhar shares stories from about all of that, plus the successful Indiegogo campaign to fund Super Troopers 2 in his new memoir, Mustache Shenanigans, and also in a sit-down with me in the offices of Dutton's Penguin Random House. So let's get to it! So, Jay, when was the, uh, when was the last time you went by the uh, alias Jake Chandler? I went by the alias Jake Chandler when I was seven. I was 16 or 17, and I was about to go uh, up on a stand-up stage for the first time. And I was, you know, at this point, there were already zero Indians in show business, I mean, aside from Ben Kingsley. And Ben Kingsley, his real name is, um, I think it's Priyat Banji is his real name. Like, even he didn't keep his, uh, he changed it to Ben Kingsley. Right. Uh, uh Fisher Stevens, by the way, who played an Indian in Short Circuit 2, that's not even his, his real name. His real name is right. Stephen Fisher, uh, which is It was a different time. There, was, there were right? no Aziz Ansaris or Hari right. Kandabolus. Or... Right. They're right. And so I was like, well, I don't know. How am I going to make it with that name, Jay Chandrasekhar? So I said, I went up as Jake Chandler. I said, well, if I'm going to change the last name, why not change the first name? <laughs> and uh, I went up like that a couple times, and then a woman came up to me and was like, why are you not using your real name? And I was just embarrassed. I was just embarrassed. And so I, then I went under Jay Chandris. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and my friends are like, what the fuck is that, Chandris? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, forget it. So then I figured, you know, if Schwarzenegger could do it, I counted his letters. He had 13. I had 13. So I said, oh, what the hell? I'll try it. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad I did. I would, I would hate myself right now if, I, if my book was, was written by Jake Chandler. No. Jake Chandler, mustache shenanigans. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> reading, reading your memoir, I'm struck by, uh, you know, there's that famous quote about greatness. Some people are born great. Some people become great. Some people have it thrust upon them. There are several moments in your l- young life where it seems like you were making key decisions, sometimes on purpose, and t- sometimes you just sort of stumbled into them. Yeah, I mean, you like know. Like, you didn't intend to go to Colgate for any no. good reason, but you just ended up there. Yeah, like I, I, I had a very high opinion of myself. Like mm-hmm. I believed that I belonged at the Ivy in the Ivy Leagues, and yet I didn't work hard enough to get the grades to go there. But I was like, I'm so fucking good; mm-hmm. they should know it. They should let me in, and they will let me in. And I, you know, so I applied to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Brown, Dartmouth, uh, Northwestern, and. 
with my, you know, B plus average, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then, and then, and there you go. And so I was like walking through the hallways and I, and I ran into my girlfriend uh, who was walking the other way, happened to be walking the other way. And I said, you know, I'm starting to get nervous about all the schools I applied to. I said, I didn't apply to any safety schools at all. And she goes, wow, yeah, that's, yeah. And I said, do you have any applications in your locker? And she said, I do. I do have a couple. And so we went to her locker and we found one for Boston University, Boston College, and Colgate. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have essays that can fit these. It was due the next day, all three of them. So I ran around doing my last half-assed thing that I always did, got my teachers to write immediate recommendations and sent, put the, you know, filled it out and sent my already written essay out. And the three schools I got into were Boston University, Boston College, and Colgate. And I'm like, oh, you know, and when you think about it, there are all these Indians who are like A, A plus students, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what do they need this junky old B plus Indian for, right? And that's what they thought. They were like, we have plenty of good Indians. They don't need this junky one. So I didn't get into, you know, I got it. Obviously, I got into Colgate. But, um, uh, and it was from there that I, that I, you know, met the four guys who I would go on to work with for the next 20 years and make now eight movies with. Right. So. It's, you know, that was a miracle of luck. Had she gone down another hallway that day, I don't know what would have happened. Like, I might not have gone to college. I might have, like, taken a year off, and I wouldn't end up at Colgate, and who knows? Well, you did take time off from Colgate to go back to Chicago and pursue comedy, but did you know what you were getting yourself into there? Like, not really. I mean, crossing I, paths with the legendary Del Close and all the people who were coming through it. Well, I was a, I was in plays in high school and college, right. and I was you know I was getting laughs from my buddies who came to see the play, but I said to myself, I'm like I'm not going to try show business unless I, I can make strangers laugh, and so I, I I'm from Chicago, so I went to Chicago and I studied at Loyola University to get credits, and I dove into the improv film, uh, improv scene. And my, a friend of mine from high school was in that scene. And I took a class, and, and Del Close, who's like the father of improv, basically, was teaching the class. And I was a beginner, and I was in a class with the top experts in Chicago. It was like a mixed class. And, the, and one of the guys was Chris Farley, uh, who I got to know pretty well. And, um, and we, you know, he was in the best improv group, and I was in the worst improv group. And his group would get endless laughs and our group was getting 45 minutes of dead silence i was not getting laughs from strangers in doing this improv thing and so i was like i'm not going to attempt show business unless i can make strangers laugh so i i wrote stand-up jokes i wrote 10 minutes of stand-up and i said i'm just going to try it and so i went up and i went to an open mic and i uh did all my 10 minutes in five minutes really i ran right through it (laughs) Uh, but I got Classic strangers. Mistake, yeah. yeah, strangers laughed. I mean, they did. They laughed, and I was like, "Okay, okay." And so I did it probably another twenty times that semester, and I and it was working. It was like sometimes I'd bomb, but sometimes it would really work. And I decided, okay, I can do this. I can, you know, Indians may not be on the movie screens or in television, mm-hmm. but you know, black people had made it in the stand-up comedy business, and I'm like, well, maybe I can go that route. Maybe I can like get in at Saturday Night Live or, you know, do something like that. And, uh, and so, yeah, that how, was... How important do you think coming back to Colgate flush with all that Chicago comedy energy and inspiration? Well, look, I mean, I came back right. and I, I was... I, I had been in real show businesses, in my opinion. Right. And I was bragging. 
I was walking around talking about, oh, yeah, I'm such a great improviser, and I was part of these improv groups, and Chris Farley and all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. I was just laying bullshit down at Colgate. And who was going to check me? It was 800 miles away, right? I mean, and so... The internet wasn't the internet. No. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm from Chicago, yeah. And then someone called my bluff because uh, a guy who had a theater group, um, he had started this really avant-garde theater group, and uh, it was a big deal. It was called the Kinetic Theater Group at at Colgate, but he was going to London for the semester, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to keep the theater group running, so he said, I'm going to have hire four people to do one-act plays. So I hired three people who each was doing a one-act play, and he said to me, he said, you're always talking about that improv group thing. Start an improv group. Do Be the fourth one-act. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And so I called my friend Kevin Heffernan, who, who's he's the guy who's sort of the, the other part of Broken Lizard that we've sort of made all these movies together. Right. And he, I said, he, he had been in Captain Hook when he was in third grade. That was the last acting he'd done. But he was a very funny guy. And I said, hey, dude, you want to do that improv thing? You know, Chris Farley, I did all mm-hmm. the thing. You want to make do an improv show at Colgate? And he goes, an improv show? I'm not doing an improv show. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. So I called the guy back, and I'm like, we're not doing a show. We're, we're just, you know what? We're going to be seniors. We want to drink. We want to smoke grass. We just want to hit on girls and have fun. And he goes, God, okay. So the middle of the summer happens. Like, we're now it's the summer. Mm-hmm. I go to the Grateful Dead. I camp out for four days. Drop some acid. I'm like feeling a little jelly-headed. I get a phone call from this guy. And he goes, dude, I really need you to do this. I got three one-acts. I need you to do this improv show. I need you. And I'm like, all right, man, let me, let me call you back. So I call Kevin in Connecticut. And I'm like, dude, let's do that improv show. Chris Farley, how about that, huh? And he goes, I don't – he goes, Colgate, everyone's so cynical there. What if we suck and, <laughs> and nobody laughs? I'm not going to be embarrassed like that. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't even know what I was thinking, right? So I call the guy back. I'm like, we're not doing it. Come back to the fall. We're at Colgate. We are drinking and smoking and hitting on girls and having a ball and just studying philosophy and history. And everything is great. And this dude calls me from London on the payphone. And he goes, I'm in London. I got three one acts. You're the fourth. You're doing the improv show. It's a done deal. I'm not going to hear about it anymore. I put you in that play last year. You were the lead. I did you a favor. You're doing this for me. And I'm like, fine, fuck it, fine. And I hung up. And I went up to Kevin's room, and I walked in. I'm like, it's a done deal, dude. We're doing a show. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's already a done deal. And he goes, fine, fuck it, fine. And so then we did. We put together, like, you know, we called, like, seven really funny people who were none of them were actors and said, let's put on a show. And in the first beginning was, was bad. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like... I was trying to teach improv. I didn't know how to teach right. improv. Everybody was improvising, and we're like, this is not funny. And so I said, look, we love Python. We love Saturday Night Live. We all write tons of history papers and English papers and philosophy papers. We can write a two-minute sketch or five-minute sketch. We can do this. And so we switched the group completely from improv to sketch, started writing sketch. We shot some short videos, which were like really rudimentary, like mm-hmm. one-shot video. I mean, just were really you directing rude. those? Too? Yeah, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and but we needed we needed stuff to go in between the stage sketches because we needed to change from our mermaid costumes to our wizard costumes, and it took time, right? So we needed a little video. Can't have a show without mermaids and wizards. That's right. And so then we put on a show. We were like, okay, so we we put on the show. We put up signs everywhere. And the first night, 40 people showed up, and there were 300 seats. And we were like, okay, well, let's get it put on the damn show. And it worked. It was funny. And people were laughing, and we're like, oh, okay, that was, that was good. At least, at least we got laughs, and we memorized our lines. 
the next night there were 350 people there. And the next two nights it was just even 400. I mean, we just had to add seats. And it was a huge hit. And the rush was intense. Because we had created something original and unique and our own. And uh, after that, we did another one the next semester. Then we moved to New York and we just went for did it. Did that give you the uh, the confidence then to to take charge a couple of years later in New York City when when people were starting to go their different ways? And, yeah, I mean, I, I... And you kind of said, okay, we're going to do a show at yeah, the I duplex mean, I, and we're going to... I started the group at Colgate, so they were all like... As far as they were concerned, we graduated. They're like, our comedy careers are over, right? I mean, we're not going to try to make it in show business. Like, that's not, just not something people from Colgate do. And I was like, yeah, I might move to L.A. and try it, or I might move to San Francisco where my girlfriend is. Right. But I ended up moving to New York City where I knew a lot of people from Colgate. And I said to Kevin, I'm like, let's do this. Let's try it again. He goes, all right, let's do it. So he was, he was a paralegal at this point. And we, you know, we put together a new group, and eventually the guys graduated from Colgate and came down. And and we, you know, we we were performing at the Duplex in uh, in the West Village, which was like half drag queens and like lounge singers, and then us. We were right. Like there this, wasn't much of a scene no. because the UCB, who also came through Del Close, yeah, they hadn't they weren't they around. hadn't shown up yet. There you wasn't... know, the state was about to form. Right. It was basically the only two comedy groups in town were us and the state. That was it. And comedy groups just were not a huge thing at the time. No, I'm, I'm no. around the same age, and I remember yeah. what, it wasn't even considered a cool thing to do. No, I mean, no. But the shows we were doing were super hip. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of Colgate, Colgate spills into New York City when it's done. I mean, like 70% probably move there. And so we knew hundreds and hundreds of people. And so the clubs put us up on a Monday night, and we sold it out, and we sold more alcohol than they sold on Saturday night because Colgate people are, are hard-drinking people. And so immediately the club's like, holy Christ, you guys are on Fridays now. And, so, and then they gave us Saturdays. They're like, well, you just sell the alcohol. As we don't care what you guys do. Just sell alcohol. And that's what it was. I mean, you know, Colgate gave us this boost because of all the people that were coming to our shows because we were the only people involved in our, in the arts at all ever from Colgate probably in years. I mean, I, I can't name one before us. Um, and then, of course, you know, you you almost got the MTV gig that the state got. That's right. Uh, yes, the MTV gig. So the, the... Did not getting that gig kind of even put more fire in your belly well, than, MTV than it might have? MTV made it let us know that they were going to give one of uh, a comedy group a TV show, sketch TV show. And they were not going to cast a bunch of funny people. They wanted an intact comedy group. So it was going to be us or the one other group in town, the state. And we, they came to our show and we killed it. I mean, we absolutely blew the doors off the joint and we let, and when they left, we shook hands. They were like, Oh, this is amazing. And we were like, we're going to be on TV. <laughs> and the next night they went to see the state mm-hmm. and they must have killed it a little bit more because they got the show. And when we found that out, we were crushed. And the reality was there was now Saturday night live in living color, kids in the hall. And now the state, right? They didn't need a broken. Li- we didn't need a fifth mm-hmm. show and it wasn't going to happen. And so we were like, okay, we're shut out of television as far as we were concerned. But it was the 90s, and there was a huge independent film movement going on with Richard Linklater and uh, Kevin Smith and Eddie Burns and uh, Witt Stillman. And these guys were making movies, uh, you know, raising small amounts of money and making movies. 
And we said, you know, we always wanted to be Monty Python. We have been shooting all these short films. Let's, and TV is closed. So let's go make a movie. Let's get into the movie business and let's be Monty Python. Because it's kind of poetic or ironic that Super Troopers came out right about the same time festivals as What Hot American Summer. We came Which out, was the States movie. That's right. And then your movie. But Super Troopers became the huge success story. Yeah. I mean, we shot... We were prepping Super Troopers when they were... Uh, we were editing Super Troopers, I think, when they were prepping Wet Hot American Summer. Mm-hmm. And we knew what they were doing. They knew what we were doing. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They were... But we were competing. You know, to this day, I still haven't seen Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> Because they were my competition. Right. And that's so insane and so stupid. But yet that's – there's a lot of us in show business who look at it that way. Like if a movie opens up on the same weekend as my mm-hmm. movie, I won't fucking see it. Like, like I, I opened a book in Passion of the Christ once. And Mel Gibson, aside from his awful stuff he says when he's drunk, right. is one of the great American – or Australian. Right. Uh, American. I think he's an American citizen. Uh, great filmmakers. He's a great filmmaker. And I love his films. But I haven't seen The Passion of the Christ because it opened against Club Dread. <laughs> what, at, what opened against Dick's Hazard? Didn't matter. We, <laughs> fucking, we mowed him down. I don't even know. You didn't want to open against us. Well, I know our time is short, but I want to ask you about two other film projects. Uh, one being Los Enchilados. Yeah. Mitch Los Enchilados. Yeah, Mitch Hedberg. Lost Hedberg's, movie, which is not available anywhere, I don't think. I don't know. I mean, you know. I, you, you were I was in the in, editing room with him. My manager and was is was a guy named Dave Miner. He also managed Mitch Hedberg. And I'm an editor. I'm a film editor. So he, my manager called me up and he said, look, Mitch has a film. It's like two hours and 20 minutes long. Can you help him find his movie? So he came in uh, to the edit room and the two of us sat in the dark and we just, and I just, you know, I just went after it. I said, this is too long. Let's cut this, cut this, cut this. And we cut it down to about 75 minutes. And you know, he would, he, Mitch would get up and leave every 15 minutes and come back reeking of pot smoke. And I was like, you know, bitch, you can just smoke, smoke in here and we'll get a lot more work done. And so that's what we did. We sat in that dark room and we just smoked joints. And what, what did being exposed to him, not just the pot smoke, what did being exposed to him and his comedy mean for you? Well, look, he, it- he, he was a weird guy. Like he was a funny, he was a funny guy, but the way he spoke on stage is also the way he spoke in person. And he wore yellow sunglasses around all the time. I mean, I loved his humor. I loved his delivery. Like, he, he's like one of those gutsy comics, one of those guys who's, like, willing to go with, to speak slowly, mm-hmm. you know, willing to let you stew out there while you <laughs> wait for this punchline. And when it comes, you're like, was that the punchline? <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, that works on five levels. <laughs> I mean, that guy really had it going on. The problem, of course... Is that he, um, you know, was taking heroin? Yeah, and uh, and I don't know how many people have to uh, die of heroin for people to get it. Hopefully, you know, no, hopefully sure, no yeah, more. it's a great drug. It feels good, but really, is it worth it? It's not no, worth it. It's not worth it. There's a lot of good ones, drugs you can do and, and not die. Yeah. Um, so finally, bringing us all the way to the here and now with Super Troopers Two, which was funded through crowdsourcing through Indiegogo. Yeah. I was watching that happen. Writing about it on my website, the Comics Comic. What was it like for you guys, one, to make that decision? Because people have been asking you about Super Troopers 2 for 15 years. One, to make the decision to do it through Indiegogo, and then to see how it panned out. 
Well, it was high risk because if if the audience didn't fund the movie, then it meant they didn't really want to see it badly enough. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily true, but that's how show business would have looked at it. They would have said, oh, there's no demand for this. The reality is, why should an audience have to pay for a movie in advance? <laughs> but the good news was we pressed the button to start and... Look, we poured ourselves into that campaign. We shot 30 videos, and we put the mustaches on, and we really like went for it and tried to make good quality stuff. And you know, and we you know we we hired the right guy to manage the campaign, and and it you know we started it, and we were you know we were north of a million bucks within I don't know 12 hours or something, and it, we're up to like 4.7 now. So it's it was it was a real. Over 50,000 people donated, and, yeah. the, and the studio said, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. There's a, there is a demand here. Right. 50,000 people also paying $10, 15 a movie ticket is yeah. Yeah. no money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> We've already sold a lot of tickets because part of the thing was you could buy a ticket if you donated money. Right. Do you think you guys just tapped into this whole era at the right time in terms of the crowdfunding and uh, or you know like you said you put a lot of heart and effort into making the campaign work I think too. that the I think that the at the end of the day that first film Super Troopers was watched by a lot of people with their friends smoking joints or not mm-hmm. drinking whatever it was maybe just watching drinking syrup or whatever. whatever it was but the rhythm of what we did struck a chord I think mm-hmm. I think we're a group of friends and they're a group of friends and they sort of the dynamics between us, maybe they remind them of their own groups. I'm not sure. But there's a soft place in people's hearts for that film. I mean, for some people, they have they just have a soft place for that film. And so I think the nostalgia of it, of it all, they're like, oh, another one, wouldn't that be fun? I don't know. They, they just responded, you know? They just responded. Uh, at what point have your uh, immigrant parents been uh, happy with your choice to become a director they editor love it rather than a physician they love it they love it they love it all they've been to sundance and seen huge you know 1200 person screenings and they've they've been to you know to uh, hollywood boulevard where we like shut it down for the dukes of hazard premiere uh they did the same thing for beer fest they love it all they love it all what would you tell the um the kids back at lake forest academy or or kids of immigrants who want to kind of do their own thing. Well, I think that is the only way, is to do your own thing. I mean, and, and it's true of show business in general, even whether you're white or Indian or whatever you are. If you don't do your own thing, you're most likely not going to get a chance to do it because cause if you're waiting for the odds of you being picked by somebody else to do it, it's it's very unlikely it's going to happen. And even if it does happen, it may be very short-lived because they'll move on to somebody else. You've got to, like, make your own way. Think of yourself as a painter Paint your own paintings, you know? It's, there's no difference. There should be no difference with film. You know, you've you got to do your own thing. Well, Jay, thanks so much for not giving up on doing your own thing. Thank and, you. And uh, saving a few minutes for me. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. it. Thank you very much. Thanks. And now here's a clip from the audiobook of Mustache Shenanigans, narrated by Jay Chandrasekhar, accepted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Years later, after the success of Duke's, Studio President Jeff Robinoff had given Broken Lizard a suite of offices in the motel building on the Warner Brothers lot. Soon after we moved in, I met Jeff in his office, where he asked me what I wanted to do next. When I told him that we wanted to make a film about an international beer-drinking team that competes against other countries' teams in beer games, he cocked his head. 
You're serious, right? We have a great script, I said. Jeff nodded. If you think it's great, I'm sure it is. Can you make it for $13 million? That's the lowest number we can make a movie for here, and I don't have to ask permission for that. I said, sounds like a good number, but Sony owns it. Jeff said that Sony owed him a favor, and within weeks, Warner Brothers had bought the rights to Beerfest, and Jeff had greenlit the movie. It was that easy. After years of running around raising money and navigating the roadblocks put up by various low-level development executives, this was different. This was rarefied air. We were talking to the boss, and the boss didn't want to talk about script notes. Thanks to the success of Dukes, Warner Brothers trusted us and proved it with a quick green light. As much as we wanted to shoot in Germany, economics dictated that we shoot closer to home. Since Warner Brothers had a new production relationship with New Mexico, we were asked to see if we could figure it out there. This would require doubling Albuquerque for Munich, so we adjusted the script so that the arena and, frankly, most of the Germany scenes would take place inside. And yes, the rumor is true. The Beerfest Arena was inspired by the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Bloodsport. We wrote 20 drafts of the script before I cast it, again, to ensure that everyone was writing jokes for every character. We needed brothers and felt that Eric and Paul were the most visually similar, so they got the parts of Todd and Jan Wolfhouse, respectively. To round out the rest of the drinking team, we decided to create drinking specialists. We wrote a part for a scientist who would use science to devise faster ways to drink. We wrote a part for a gluttonous volume drinker, who would be our anchorman in chugging contests. And we wrote a part for a beer game specialist, a ringer who knew his way around a quarter. Steve Lemmy had a high school friend named Finkelstein, who was a genetic scientist. The real-life Finkelstein told Steve that part of his job was to masturbate frogs to collect their sperm. We didn't need to add any comedy there. Lemmy modeled Finkelstein's hairstyle after Sean Penn's in Carlito's Way, which meant he had to shave three inches of male pattern baldness into the front of his scalp daily. On the weekends, Lemmy would let his hair grow back, but it created an ugly stubble effect that looked even worse. Lemmy actually encountered a few anti-Semitic encounters in Albuquerque, where guys called him Jew Boy. For a non-Jewish, half-Spaniard, half-Argentinian kid, that was surreal. One of our bigger friends at Colgate was nicknamed Landfill. Heffernan, who was our biggest guy, and who also happens to be our fastest beer chugger, snagged that part. That left me to play the beer game specialist. We named the character Barry Badernath after one of my childhood friends. And we wrote a scene where the Wolfhouse brothers go looking for and find Barry working at a circus as a weathered circus roadie. Something about that felt too cute, so we switched it last minute, making Barry Badernath a male prostitute who peddles his wares near an overpass. When they find him and ask him to join the team, Barry tries to show them how good he still is at beer games, but he can't land a single quarter in the cup. The brothers leave dejected and head back to the bar. Then Barry bursts in, drunk, and drills one quarter after another, finishing with the off-heard quarters line, I'm better when I'm drunk. In addition to Broken Lizard, the cast included Donald Sutherland, Jürgen Prochnow, Monique, Cloris Leachman, Dukes and Club Dread alum M.C. Ganey, and Super Troopers alum Philippe Brennickmeyer. We approached Donald Sutherland because once upon a time, he had played a professor in one of our favorite films of all time, Animal House. Sutherland was cool and his being in the opening scene lent our film an air of much-needed gravitas. Cloris Leachman played Great Gam Gam, the boy's kindly grandmother, and was fully willing to go wherever the joke took her. I love Cloris, and I think the feeling was mutual because she would not allow us to shoot an inch of film until she and I kissed in front of the crew for 30 seconds every morning. I'm an actor's director. Jürgen Prochnow was dark and hilarious as Baron Wolfgang von Wolfhausen. 
the elder statesman of the Germans. The highlight for me was a scene where he's piloting the German team in a cramped submarine. He flips out on his guys for grab-assing before apologizing. Sorry, I had a bad experience on a U-boat once. This, of course, was a callback to his legendary performance in the German submarine film Das Boot. It was cool that he was willing to do that. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.